Hey everybody, this is Blaine checking back in with another installment of Appalachian Pie, brought to you from our virtual studios somewhere out there in the Ethernet. And today I get to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Mr. Joe Bowman. He's an attorney here in Asheville, wonderful fella, and I hope you enjoy what he has to say. And just as a little caveat, this episode is a bit dated. It was recorded in either late July or very early August, and I was trying my best to figure out a way to filter out a lot of the road noise and stuff that you'll still hear on it, but I think I've gotten it down enough that you can actually follow along with the conversation. So, take care. We'll catch you in a little bit. Thank you for joining us on Appalachian Pie this evening, and we're going to be joined by Mr. Joe... Well, I I guess I should call you Barrister? No, that's in Britain. (laughs) No, uh, I go by Joe or Joseph Bowman, uh, just attorney. That's fine. So, yeah, you're you're not someone who's um, from the area, but you've relocated here, and... What exactly brought you down to the mountains and everything? Uh, my wife. She makes all my major decisions for me. And uh, we, uh, we came to North Carolina so she could pursue her education in public health. And uh, we made several moves. We've lived in uh, Durham, Greenville, Wilmington, and now Asheville. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a lot of hopscotching around the same state. Man. Yeah. Well, it's been 13 years that we've been here now, and um, it's been great, but Asheville is definitely the best place we've ever lived. Oh, beauty. And if you don't mind me kind of putting you on the spot here, um, obviously I'm bringing you on here for a little discussion about some goofy laws and all that stuff that we have to deal with as people (laughs) in the region and everything, but... Did, did your wife come from here, or exactly what What was the reason that she was here for school and such? Um, no, neither of us from here. We're both from Nebraska, and um, North Carolina was picked because of the uh, education system. They had good public uh, health schools, and we ended up in Asheville because her brother works for the VA here. He's an ear, nose, and throat specialist, uh, uh, and... Um, so we moved to Asheville. We've got an older boy who lives down in Atlanta, and it's much closer to Asheville than it is to Wilmington. And uh, Asheville's just a really cool town. Well, I can't fault you on that whatsoever, sir. And I'm all the more beautiful that you guys ended up, well, hell, coming from Nebraska. I mean, geez, all the way out from the plains to the mountains. That, was it kind of a weird transition, or what happened with the culture shock, I guess? Sure. Well, the um, 
the culture in Nebraska is um, a kind of big, wide open place where you have to learn how to make your own fun. Otherwise, you're not going to have any. Um, you got to be inventive. Uh, there's definitely um, a do-it-yourself culture with uh, the kids who grew up with punk rock and skateboarding like I did. And, um, you know, the great thing about Lincoln, Nebraska, where I'm from, is it's a midway point between, like, Chicago and Denver and Kansas City. So a lot of really good bands will stop off in uh, Lincoln and do a show because they're on their way to a gig at a bigger place. So we grew up, you know, with great live music and all kinds. I had seen Black Flag and Suicidal Tendencies and... and, uh, uh, met Henry Rollins and and uh, you met fucking Henry Rollins. Yeah, yeah, I got his autograph when I was a kid. I hate you now. <laughs> well, I hate you because I want to be you <laughs> just for that moment. Yeah, it was a, it was a really cool moment. Um, we I got to meet Steve Caballero and uh, his band, The Faction, played because we had a, a couple of local skate ramps and a skate shop, and uh, like Christian Hasoy came out there and. Um, it, it was a great little town to grow up in. It's a university town. It's much bigger than Asheville. It's about 200, 250,000 people. But, you know, um, it it's very different because in the Midwest, people are a little more standoffish. You know, people down in the South are much uh, more familiar, much more in your face. Whether they love you or they hate you, you're going to know about it almost immediately. And that's not true uh, in the Midwest. So, um... I guess getting back to that little bit of the cultural change then, um, how did you guys both being Nebraskans just embrace that? Because it seems to me like you're you're definitely a person that's kind of like anchored into the Asheville, the Appalachian region for all practical purposes. Yeah, well, um, still adjusting to mountain culture, which is different than the flatlands and the beach, of course. Um, but the southern culture is was an easy shift. My daddy's from Oklahoma, which is um, culturally more southern than than people would think. You know, for being out west. I mean, I grew up with sweet tea and catfish and okra and all that stuff, and and um, it was great to come back to the south and and experience that again. It was like going to my grandma's house. You know where we'd go for summer vacations and whatnot. Well, very nice, and you know we can go ahead and get away from the BS with the backstory now because the reason I'd reached out to you and a gentleman that we all know and love, yeah, screw you, Benny. Um, he put us in touch, and I was wanting to do a little conversation about not only oddball laws in the North Carolina region, but also the legal issues that come up with people that may or may not necessarily understand what those laws are. So, Okay. Let's start with some basic stuff. This is just really for your listeners' information. Um, If you get a ticket for dead tags and you fix your tags, the state must dismiss it. So that's a fix-it ticket. Don't sweat it. Just get your tags fixed. Um... The seatbelt ticket in Asheville, um, you probably can get it dismissed if you ask very nicely. Uh, the seatbelt laws are kind of bullshit because every car made since 1985 has a bell in it that rings if you're not wearing your seatbelt. Nobody drives around with that bell ringing all the time. Um, the seatbelt tickets 
uh, I mean, I get it. Seatbelts save lives, but um, they're generally a, a revenue source for a lot of municipalities and, and counties. And one of the problems with the court system is court costs and fees and fines have steadily increased over the last 15 years. And, and uh, that's a tax. I apologize. Uh, I, I do and don't mean to interrupt you at the same time. It, it, it's, it's kind of awkward because it strikes me as though these laws are inhibiting people having their own free thoughts, their, their, their own ability to choose for themselves. And that's kind of the thing that really irritates me as far as the way the goofiness has been going on. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a loss of freedom in North Carolina for the regular citizens. And the biggest problem is that it has a terrible impact on people who don't have a lot of money. Um, the court system is filled with people who are working poor, who are, you know, they have a job, they work it full time, they have kids, um, you know, but they're just getting by and getting nickel and dimed at, with $200 a pop is your average court cost and fine, 200 bucks. That's a lot of money for most people. And, you know, I don't blame the police for it. They are doing what they are told to do. Right. Um, I blame the legislature for, you know, slowly increasing these costs and, and, and really taxing people who can't afford to be taxed. A seatbelt ticket is almost $200. It started off as $25. Now, $25 seatbelt ticket, that's reasonable. It's kind of a nuisance but nobody's going to miss the rent because of $25. But it's not $25 anymore. It's $165. Uh, that's a problem. That's a problem for a lot of people. Those are laws that don't make any sense. Uh, and I guess that they just keep creeping up because nobody really focuses on it. You know, nobody really understands, unless they work in the system, that this is a revenue stream for the legislature that they have grown accustomed to because most of the money that's collected at the courthouse doesn't stay at the courthouse. It goes to the legislature, goes into the general fund, and a little bit of it comes back to the courthouse, but it's not like they're collecting that money from themselves. Well, we'll get back to a little bit more of just the BS that affects everyone daily and this, that, and other. But if you don't mind me asking you, sir, um, what would be – hell, let's spitball the two. Yeah, definitely the two biggest issues that you find people don't necessarily understand and – well, we brought it up before, actually, one of them, the Castle Doctrine. Okay. Um, Castle Doctrine simply stated, in North Carolina, they passed, uh, I think it was 2012, basically, uh, 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 you have no duty to retreat in your home, in your work, in your business. It's uh, kind of the North Carolina equivalent to the standard ground law. Here's what it means. If you're in any of those places, your home, your car, your work, and you feel like somebody is threatening you with deadly force, you can kill them. Wait, 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 wait. Your home, your car, and your work. Somehow the castle follows you, not the castle being your abode. Correct. So there is a presumption of, uh, you know, reasonable self-defense. Uh, if you're afraid for your life, you think somebody's going to, for example, carjack you or trying to rob you or try and break into your house to assault you or rob you, uh, you are allowed to respond with lethal force. And uh, what that means is that um, 
if you're then accused of a crime and put on trial, you get a jury instruction that says that you were reasonable in your belief that you needed to use deadly force, and the state has to prove that you were unreasonable in your belief that you had to use deadly force. It makes it harder for the state to convict you when you are using self-defense, uh, even lethal self-defense, in those instances. Yeah, I, I was about to say, it's almost like it's a secondary trial going on within a trial at that point. Uh, kind of, but, you know, that law informs the district attorney and the police officers. Uh, it, you know, they look at that law and they consider it for when they're going to arrest people or charge them. And they know what the law is, and if you get in that situation, they have to consider it before they bring charges. Uh, the reality is uh, that you can defend yourself, um, whether it's with a firearm or a knife or a club or you know whatever it is. You are allowed to protect yourself in North Carolina, as long as it's reasonable. And reasonable... It's case that, by case. I was going to say it's subjective, obviously. So no, actually, it's it's uh, it's an objective standard because they don't look at it in the situation of you as a person, as the individual person. They look at it. They put an ordinary, reasonable man standard in there, and they say, would anybody in this situation react the same way? You know, uh, have the same kind of options and. and um, it's interesting. It hasn't been tested very much in North Carolina, and there are some questions about what happens when you have people shooting, for example, out of a car into a house, like a drive-by situation, and people in the house shooting into the car. Well, according to the Castle Doctrine Law, both occupants have the right to use lethal force against the other perceived threat. It's kind of a juxtaposition of legality i guess <laughs> yeah it hasn't it hasn't come up in any cases that i've seen um but it's one of those issues kind of laying in the bushes um that i think was not anticipated by the uh, legislature when they when they made that change wow and um well let's step away from something as serious as that and get a little bit less crazy Ah, fuck it. We may as well just go down that road. Let's jump into what North Carolina's done with HB2. Um, Personally, I think it's more or less an attempt to hijack the ability for municipalities to make their own laws and everything, but um, everyone is stuck on the idea of the bathroom thing, and I, I I can get that. It, it makes it more sensational. makes it easier for the media. Blah, 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 blah. But um, I, what would be your take on it, sir? Well, the interesting thing about um, the bill is it didn't create any new crimes. So it's not a crime for a man to use a woman's bathroom. It might be trespassing, but there's you can't be arrested for it. It's not. It hasn't created any new crimes. Um, it just said it's against the law. So the municipalities can't pass laws that, that say otherwise. And um, I don't think that it's uh, the state stepping in and taking over for uh, Charlotte. I think that the Republicans were very cynical in passing this uh, statute, and they did it to energize their base to drive Republicans to the polls uh, in November on this issue of should we let sex sexual predators um, sneak into our bathrooms with our children. 
I, I think that's why they passed the law because they wanted to have a huge turnout for Republicans in the fall election. That's what I think this is about. Just like Amendment 1, the gay marriage ban, that was there not because it was good law or because it would stand the test of constitutional scrutiny, but because it would drive Republicans by the thousands to go vote out of fear. That's what I think the law is about. And it's total bullshit. Um, It makes us look like, you know, backwards, you know, people who don't understand the modern world. We are surrounded by states that don't have these kinds of discriminatory laws, and they're getting all the business that we used to get. And we've lost a lot of business simply for this bullshit, if you think about it. I mean, even right down to what's gone on with the whole NBA thing recently. Yeah, it's a it's a really good point. I mean, there is a huge economic cost to be paid for uh, these kind of culture war issues that we need to walk away from. I was told that the Republicans were going to be all about jobs and growth. That's all I heard about during the campaign. So where are the jobs and where is the growth? I haven't seen it. There's been plenty of tax cuts, um, which may stimulate the economy at some point. Uh, It sure hasn't stimulated the teachers. Uh, Most of them are leaving. This is a terrible place to teach. The benefits are awful. The future outlook is terrible. Um, So where does that leave our kids? You know, uh, I've always said that you can spend a dollar on a school or two dollars on a prison. It's your choice, but you're going to have to pay. It's cheaper to pay up front. Those are all really serious issues, and and there's a lot of that in the law. Uh, Most of the people that I work with, they come to me, and they're, you know, very worried about something, whether it's a speeding ticket or their kid got caught trafficking heroin. Yeah, it happens a lot. Uh, People don't understand how the trafficking laws work here. Let me talk about that, because your listeners might be real interested to know. I'm actually kind of thrown by trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. When you think trafficking, you think international, you know, shipments of kilos of heroin from Afghanistan, right? Right. That's not what it is. It's four grams of oxycodone is trafficking, all right? Four grams of oxycodone will get you 70 to 84 months in prison and a $50,000 fine, and it's mandatory, and you can't get probation for it. Okay, four grams of oxy, that's like um, five or six pills of the big ones because they have acetaminophene uh, or Tylenol mixed in with them, and maybe uh, five grams or five milligrams of uh, actual oxy. Um, but they they weigh the entire mixture, you know, and the fact that it's mostly Tylenol doesn't matter. Uh, and so people don't understand. So wait a minute, wait, a minute, wait. Uh, I apologize. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going fast. No, no, no. Uh, it's okay. So our justice system actually does not even take into account that there could be a difference in percentage of what is being found. They just take it, oh, you've got this in there, and every little bit of that works against you. Right. The the oxy is treated as if it were pure heroin. That's the way the law works. Um, sometimes the district attorney will work with you and break it down so that you don't have a mandatory prison sentence like that, and sometimes they will not. The uh, vice and narcotics officers here will use those uh, extremely strict laws against you to make sure that you have a huge bond, and once you're arrested, you cannot get out of jail unless you cooperate with them. And cooperating with the police in a drug case means 
you know, telling on your friends. It means uh, making buys while you're wearing uh, recording equipment. It means testifying against people that you used to get high with. So it's kind of counterproductive for everybody at that point if you're looking at trying to get to the source because you're you're kind of setting everybody up for failure. Well, I mean, they're 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 taking the low hanging fruit. They're taking the end users um, when they catch them with enough weight and squeezing as hard as they can to see if they can work their way up the food chain. Most people won't cooperate, and in most cases, I, I encourage people not to, because it won't help them. And and it's terrible the um, oxy, especially because oxy and heroin, especially because it's so rampant in Asheville. Um, it's rampant in the mountains in general. I mean, especially once you get out in the more rural areas. Yeah, and uh, it's killing people. It's uh, we're having a lot of people uh, overdosing here. Uh, luckily, we have a lot of reversals here because Narcon has become more readily available. People know what it is. They have it with them. They know how to give it. It's a shot or a spray in the nose uh, when people overdose. Turn it's, called, it's kind of like an EpiPen. And I apologize. I'm, I, I, I'm going to have to ask you to kind of retell that little bit because yeah. I, I, <laughs> I was more interested in listening to you and I wasn't paying attention to the computer. Okay. So um, uh, apparently the software shut down for a second. Okay, sure, sure. Um, the, the whole thing with Alyssa and, uh, at Warren Wilson. All right, so uh, I got hired to represent this uh, young girl, Alyssa, 22 years old, at Warren Wilson College. She got caught in her dorm uh, with some drugs, some uh, marijuana and maybe some psychedelic mushrooms. You know, you don't have a, any expectation of privacy in a dorm room, and you don't have a right to privacy in a dorm room. So when dorm security comes in because they think you've got drugs, and they search your room, and they find drugs, and then they call the narcotics unit out, and they take the drugs, you're in trouble. And uh, the search is not illegal. It's part of your housing contract. You've agreed to it when you signed up for it. So um, that I had her for that case, and um, we just continued the case a few months as uh, cases go in criminal court here. And I got a call on a Wednesday from um, a detective that and that Alyssa had died, that she had overdosed, and um, the police had found her, and her parents contacted me. And um, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know that she used heroin. Um, apparently, she had had an on-again, off-again um, addiction going on for years where she'd been to treatment. She'd gotten cleaned up. She'd have long periods of sobriety, and then she'd backslide and start using again. And um, that's what happened. She had been clean for a while. She, she shot up uh, by herself. She overdosed and, and died alone in her room. Um, yeah, and I, I guess, I mean, that story is horrible enough on its own face, but um, I think other people may not understand the odd relationship that you have to have with your clients as an attorney because there's obviously that back and forth confidentiality, sure. this, that, and the other. And, I mean, do you find yourself having a difficult time having conversation with people out in the real world just because you're not exactly sure if someone's name comes up, how to go? Yeah, thank you. Let me clarify that. In Alyssa's case, uh, she's different from all of my other clients in that her parents have given me uh, the authority to talk about her case for the purpose of um, 
spreading awareness about how bad the heroin problem is here in Asheville. Uh, it's a personal cause for them. They've had fundraisers in her name. They've had bands come and play at Warren Wilson in her name. Um, I spoke at uh, a presentation this spring for her. Um, I've talked to CNN about her case, and they've specifically said, Joe, you know, use everything you can about her story to try and save somebody else. So, uh, you know, I keep a lot of secrets for people all the time, and I don't talk about that with anybody. Uh, but in Alyssa's case, it's different. Um, she's passed on, and, you know, her parents want us to try and use that information to help somebody else. Um, you know, what do you think a heroin user looks like? In this case, it looked like a sweet little white girl, some hippy-dippy chick from in college that you would expect to see at a fish show or, um, you know, she didn't look like, you know, somebody from New York all dressed in black and gothic and, you know, like you would think a heroin user would be uh, because lots of people use heroin now. But they don't start with heroin. They start with pills. It, you know, there's nobody shoots up right away. They start with pills. They just pop them with a beer. It's a cheap drunk. And then you start crushing them and snorting them. Oxycontin is kind of similar to everything that's with heroin. And I guess, I mean, it. it's horrible, that story that you're dealing with. And, I mean... On one hand, it's horrible, but on another hand, it's beautiful. They want you to be able to talk about it and use it as a way to educate people. Um, well, but, I mean, the thing about it now is that, you know, that girl, there's nothing we can do for her. She's already passed, but the, the people who right now are trying to, let, let's say that the people are, are, they know that they have an addiction problem and they're trying to get help, where do they go? Well, they go and take out a loan for $50,000 for inpatient treatment because you're going to pay twenty dollars or $30,000 a month to stay at a lot of these facilities. And they may or may not take your insurance. Uh, you know, there is first at Blue Ridge, which is accessible and a lot less expensive, but um, it's, it's not a good fit for everybody, and they only have so many beds. I think that they have, I can't remember if it's 100 beds or 200 beds. Mm-hmm. You know, when people rotate in and out of that program, it's a great program, but we need more of them. You know, the need is incredible. And so, most people don't just go to one program. They go to several before it sticks. Well, so I, I guess perhaps I'm confused because we're we're kind of treading on two different sides of the trail, I guess. Um, on one hand... Yes, we want to help people, but on the other hand, we're not financially able to. But well, they all have to help themselves. If you want help, you got to pay for it. I mean, the the help that's involved from the state is basically cold turkey. It you know, tough it out, uh, which is nearly impossible. Heroin's the most addictive thing there is, and um, you know, the state mental health system was taken apart 15 years ago. And there's nothing there for people who have serious mental health problems or serious addictions. You can't go to the state to get better. You're not going to go to jail and get clean. That's not what's going to happen. I mean, you'll get clean and that you'll, you won't have access to drugs, but you're not going to get any treatment. We have essentially nothing for uh, people and their families when they really, really need help. I mean, um, the criminal justice system is there to punish us when we break the law, but there's very little to help us when we need 
you know, help with illegal substances. And that's the thing that um, for parents, uh, especially out there who may not use any of these drugs themselves, they're terrified that their kids will. And they should be. It scares the hell out of me. Or and on top of it, I mean, you and I both being of similar age range and everything, if we had children that, for whatever reason, had exposure to that. And no, they do. And, and, and the, the inability to just wean themselves off of it. Yeah, you're kind of left with an entire thing going, great. I spent my entire life working for this place. I'm, I'm sitting here paying taxes, and it means absolutely nothing when it comes down to my child. <laughs> it's yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, it's a it's a very hard truth that people run into, and and, and you know it's it's one of the problems and one of the shortcomings of the criminal justice system right now, and um, you know our approach to this this you know ongoing war on drugs, which is completely failed by every measure that matters. This is something that we have to abandon as a mindset, as a strategy. It doesn't work. There's no such thing as a, uh, a what do they call it? A threshold drug? What do they call it? A, a uh, gateway, gateway drug. drug. There's no gateway drugs. Yeah. That's bullshit. Yeah. Okay. There's there's just like there's no gateway beverages. It's not like milk <laughs> is a gateway to bourbon. Uh, weed is not a gateway to heroin. Okay. There are some drugs that you can experiment with, and they will not necessarily ruin your life. Right. There are some drugs that you can't experiment with because they're just too dangerous. All right. Uh, they're too addictive. They're too dangerous. Yeah, it's like weed and heroin do not belong in the same category by any fucking means. No, but, you know, there are things out there that will ruin you. Um, Ketamine, methamphetamine, heroin, um, crack cocaine, cocaine. I mean, these things... Which all of these are opiates that you're bringing up. Well, no, meth and, and cocaine are. They're different. I thought ketamine was also part of an opiate. Ketamine might be. Yeah. Ketamine might be, but heroin, or cocaine and... and, and uh, well, uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, man. But, but the D.A.R.E. school, you know, we, we the, the police come in with this D.A.R.E. program, you know, D.A.R.E. to keep our kids clean off drugs. They treat everything like it's the same. And then the kids figure out, well, we've been lying to them because they'll smoke pot. I mean, and, and they'll realize, well, that wasn't that bad. What else were they lying about? You know, I mean, we lose credibility with our children, and we have to be more realistic about this and approach this as a medical problem. It's the only way we're actually going to save lives. Now, if, if, if you don't mind me just being kind of like a devil's advocate on a, sure. an oddball thing here, um, I want to take a little bit of a step for what you were talking about there is sometimes I feel like parents are the ones that have gotten too scared to talk freely about their situation with their children and just kind of say, you know, yeah, I probably did some dumb things when I was young and uh, I'm trying to learn from it and I hope that I can teach you a little something. Sure. Well, I mean, it's one of those things with your with your kids. Um, your kids know when you're lying. I mean, you you know when they're lying, and they know when you're lying, right? So, be straight with them. You, I mean, you want to have a real relationship with them and maintain credibility with them. You got to tell them the truth. 
And sometimes the truth is, look, I made mistakes. Learn from them. Don't repeat them. You know, or you could tell them, look, uh, I experimented with weed when I was a kid, and I had a, a great time. You know, and nothing bad happened. Right? You just have to be responsible about it. Wait till you're older and can make your own choices. Um, don't let it affect your grades. Don't let it affect your your schoolwork or your um, you know your job. And you know it's not be that, responsible. Yeah, it's not that different from drinking. It can run away from you and it can ruin your life. But um, it's something for adults. Uh, you know that's one thing that has to be clear about this with kids. Uh, brain development doesn't stop until you're about 25. So um, you know the idea of kids starting to use drugs at the ages of 15 is um, really damaging, long-term damaging, uh, permanent damage for kids. It changes their brain chemistry. Um, I'm not saying that all drugs are bad. Obviously, I don't believe that. Uh, drugs are powerful medicine, um, but there's you don't want to use them at a time where they're going to permanently change your brain. Well, and just because you're now down here in Asheville, and a lot of people kind of pigeonhole Asheville as being the hippy-dippy spot of western North Carolina. Um, Holy shit, dude. We could get a contact high almost any afternoon just (laughs) walking up and down Haywood. I mean, there's some truth to that. But I'm just saying, you know, we're talking about whatever would be the drugs of choice, this, that, and the other, and I I appreciate what you were saying where, yes, there's, there's a certain amount of not only medicinal purpose that you've got to rely on, but there's also a little bit of it where people take advantage of it. And I guess that's what frustrates me more is because for all practical purposes, there are a lot of people that think it's not an issue if you're doing drugs because they're prescribed. But a lot of them are abused because they're prescribed and you've got access. Sure. Yeah, the biggest drug traffickers in America are prescription pill companies. You know, they're oxycodone, the reason that we have such a huge use of it is because it was actively promoted for a decade uh, through our local physicians uh, by the pharmacies and the pill manufacturers who paid them to push those pills and get people hooked on them. I mean, it's very predictable. Um, The thing about opiates is they're incredibly powerful at pain relief, but only for a short amount of time. Uh, If you have major surgery and you have to recover, you know, you might be on them for two or three weeks while you're healing, but the efficacy of the pain relief drops tremendously. You develop a tolerance to them very, very quickly. And, um, yeah, just because it comes in a bottle doesn't mean it's safe. No. It can kill you just as quick, maybe quicker. <laughs> by uh, by any means. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's, it, it's great to get that relief from the pain for a short term if you understand it. But if you sit there and rely on it afterwards, that that's where the problem comes up. And I don't think people recognize that they're... They're responsible for actually cutting themselves off. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I've run into a lot of situations where people have their prescription uh, pain pills and they sell them, you know, make a little money on the side or they trade them, right? Yeah. They form pill clubs where they'll, they'll swap different drugs because 
you know, the effect doesn't work as well. So if sometimes if you change drugs, you'll still get that high, you know, because you haven't built up the same tolerance to that. Um, all of that is considered distribution of narcotics. It's all highly illegal and it's all felonies, right? But people think that because they're pills, their their drugs came from, you know, Walgreens or wherever, you know, from the pharmacy, they think it's not a problem. But it's very much a problem. Um, you know, grandparents have to lock that stuff up. It's not safe because their grandkids will get in the cabinet and uh, take those pills and take them to school and sell them. And they'll make a lot of money off of them. Oh, sweet Jeebus. Uh, yeah, um... How are we doing? I, I just honestly did not expect that to go that direction, and it's kind of frightening, and it's almost its own show. Um, yeah, um, the thing that I would like to touch on, if you don't mind sure, sure, sure. giving me a second or two, let's redirect to goofy laws in the North Carolina Appalachian region or okay. anything. What, what kind of ridiculous BS have you run across in your time working here? Well, stealing cats is a stealing cats is a misdemeanor and animal cruelty is generally a misdemeanor. Stealing dogs of any kind is a felony. I know, right? Because they're dogs. <laughs> because some the some dog will ever pass that law. So if you steal a, a pit bull, it's a felony. Now you can steal a dozen cats and it's all just misdemeanors. Yeah, I, I uh, know. I, it's, it's historical. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the way it is. So, I mean, um, that's one of the laws. Stealing pine straw is a felony in North Carolina. Pine straw? Yeah, you know what pine straw is, right? Of course. Yeah. But people, for people that don't know, please. Pine straw are just the pine needles that fall off of pine trees, and people will bundle them up into bales and sell them for, like, you know, mulch you know, yards, uh, landscaping, and, and things like that, and they make a little bit of money off of it. Well, stealing pine straw is a felony. Why? Because somebody who had a pine straw farm had a friend in the legislature get together with his other buddies to pass this law and say, hey, it's a felony. Like, okay. Um, actually, uh, one of the things that you should know about, since we were talking about opiates and drugs, uh, the Good Samaritan law that passed in 2012 made it... And actually, you know, I apologize for sure. jumping in here. Yeah. But I don't think people actually understand what, how much real coverage you have okay. as an individual with the Good Sam laws. Okay. The, the Good Sam law says this. Number one, if you have a good faith belief that somebody needs medical treatment for an overdose, it's perfectly legal for you to give them uh, doses of Narcan uh, to counteract the overdose. You cannot be sued civilly for it. It's not a crime. It's not a crime to carry Narcan. It's not uh, uh, drug paraphernalia to have a syringe uh, with Narcan vials for the purposes of giving that medicine. It's all perfectly legal. Um, when you have somebody who overdoses, the normal procedure is you're going to administer Narcan and call 911 and take them to the emergency room because they may need additional help. That's going to be reported as a reversal, and you're not going to be in trouble for it, and the person who overdoses is not going to be in trouble for it. The Good Sam law provides... Uh, 
immunity from prosecution for possession of drug paraphernalia and very, very small amounts of cocaine or heroin. When I say small amounts, I mean one gram or less. Okay? So, um, the, you know... It's kind of the back and forth between what's legal, what's not, but certain things are legal when it's looked at the right way. Right. Well, and when you call 911 for uh, a medical response for an overdose, police may respond also. And that's why that, that law is written the way it is, because when the police come and they see evidence of drug use and paraphernalia and things like that, they're going to seize it as evidence because they don't know what's going on. But later on, those charges will be dismissed under the Good Sam law. Right. Um, and hopefully you won't even be charged or arrested. Um, and they did it that way to try and encourage people to get help when they need help. Now, um, an issue that's come up in Asheville is there's been at least one person charged with a homicide for selling or providing heroin to somebody who overdosed and died. And that has scared the shit out of a lot of people who are in the community of people who use narcotics here. And now they're all terrified of the police because they don't want to be charged with murder if somebody overdoses. And the reality of heroin and opiates is this, that a whole bunch of people who are users sell to provide for their own supply. It's not that different from marijuana. A lot of people smoke pot, sell a little on the side, you know, to pay for their own. And the same thing happens with heroin. Not everybody who sells heroin is a major dealer. Most of them are small-time, really are end-users who are, are selling you know, to pay for their own supply. Because you could spend $100 a day on heroin when you, when you get into it. I mean, 3000 a month on heroin? I mean, who's got that kind of money, and how do you get it, right? You see how people run into trouble pretty quickly. Um, but so this unintended consequence of being tough on drug dealers um, makes it so that people don't want to have anything to do with the police, and I cannot say I blame them. The police are there to enforce the laws. Now, they're also there to protect people. You know, they're taught that drugs are bad, that drug dealers are the worst. Wait, and the that, police are or yeah, the, the public are. are? The police are. You know, their mindset is, you know, when they see drugs, they're looking for drug dealers and evidence of drug use, and they're seeing a bunch of felony charges. That's, you know, and that's their job. And they want to they wanna find somebody with a whole bunch of drugs and put them in prison as long as they can. And that's kind of the mindset that we have trained them with. And they are not looking for medical solutions to this problem, which is what we need for long-term success. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, I mean, I apologize for jumping no, in no, no, again no. here, uh, but we, we can't fault the police for their own no. interpretation of what their job has no. been. They're doing what they've been trained to do. Yes. I, I do, I'm not one to beat up on the police at all. Um, I'm a big fan of police. I think most of them do a great job. Uh, I'm very proud of, of the work that they do here in Asheville, especially. But the um, and and but the reality is that the police uh, make a whole bunch of money off of drug seizures, right? If you could the call, municipality does, not the police. Well, it's used to buy equipment and <laughs> ammunition for the police, it, and vehicles it eventually for the police. works down the chain. Yes, I agree. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, it works a little quicker than you think. Let me give you an example. Uh, let's say that you have a, a person who is caught um, selling marijuana, and they have a felony amount of marijuana. Let's say that they also have $25,000 in cash, right? And the police say, well, we're going to take this money, we'll give you a receipt for it, 
and uh, we think that you're a drug dealer and we think this is drug money and we're going to apply to seize this money through the U.S. Marshals Service and they're going to send you some paperwork and if you want to contest this you can come on down to the courthouse and prove that this is not illegal drug money. Whoa, and, whoa, 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 whoa. The burden of proof is on you? Yep. Burden of proof shifts in a civil forfeiture. In a criminal case, burden of proof is on the government to prove beyond a reasonable doubt you're guilty. In a civil forfeiture, there's a presumption of guilt, and you have to pr- prove otherwise. So, in that situation, where the U.S. Marshals, through Buncombe County uh, Task Force, has just taken $25,000 off of a citizen because they think he's a drug dealer, Buncombe County gets 75% of that back. In they, they get straight money. Wow. Uh, Huge pay really? <laughs> Yeah. God damn. Okay. So now look. Now that doesn't go to the officer individually. It's not like it goes into his pocket. It goes to his department. But you think that he doesn't get an attaboy for that? You think his sergeant doesn't tell him great job? You know, when there's a big, huge seizure like <laughs> Thank that? Thank you, sir. Love you. Yeah, that's money that the taxpayers don't have to cough up, right? There is a financial incentive in the war on drugs. And there's a whole bunch of people making a lot of money off of it. And a lot of jobs that are generated by it. I understand, you know, the system um, has become addicted to drugs as well as the users, right? But it doesn't work. We've been doing this now uh, for 30 years, and it's completely failed. Back ass words. Now look, Nixon, Richard Nixon, who was by no means soft on crime in any sense of the word, he's the one who proposed the methadone clinics in the 70s. He wanted treatment for heroin addicts because he realized how addictive it is. And methadone is kind of a maintenance program. It's not a solution. Uh, It's just better than heroin. It certainly is. And it's an eye-opener, an ear-opener, I guess, for people listening and everything. But I do believe first time we kind of touched base was I was wanting to talk about just bullshit, silly laws. <laughs> well, there's those too. I mean, I, you know, when we talked about setting this up, I, I didn't. I know I had. I was going to make some notes and things about some goofball laws, and and there are. Um, there's plenty of them out there, but you know, when you ask about the. Um, the bathroom bill and and all those kinds of things you know that's fresh on my mind elections coming up and this election is going to make a world of difference to north carolinians uh, north carolinians to, to people in the united states um you know this next president is going to pick a supreme court justice uh you know our next legislator will be in there hopefully um with uh, not with mccrory and we'll be able to turn back the clock on some of the stuff that has cost us so much money and cost us so much prestige i mean we look like we look terrible hell jacks uh, you know i, I don't want to throw i don't want to you know insult anybody or throw labels on anything but i'm you know ashamed of what we've done or what's been done in our names at least uh, well we didn't have the opportunity to actually step up and say yay or nay it was done behind our backs as well so yeah. it is what it is and yeah. we can all just bitch and moan about it where we can no yeah. anyway joe i greatly appreciate you sure. joining me and lots of fun hey Anytime I can have you on, anytime I can put you in touch with somebody, let me know. And what's the best way, if you give a damn about people getting in touch with you or anything, that people can look you up? 
Uh, my name is Joe Bowman, B-O-W-M-A-N, attorney at law in Asheville, North Carolina. The best way to reach me is cell phone, 828-393-3000, 828-393-3000. You can check us out on our website, David R. Payne, P-A, drplawfirm.com. If you go on the website, you'll see there's a blog there that I maintain, and you'll see a picture of me with my big-ass mustache with white tips. I'm real easy to pick out in a crowd. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the pie t- today. And, hey, I really appreciate us relocating to the auditorium because yeah. I love this place all the more. And, please, anybody coming to Asheville, come check out the auditorium. It's on Haywood Road, just across from the Altamont Brewing Company and everything. Joe was the one that actually kind of planted that bug in my ear after we had started out at a, another location. Definitely. <laughs> thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you, sir. You have a good one. We'll yeah. catch you shortly. Okay. All right. Well, uh, hope you enjoy what Joe had to share with us and everything. And in the meantime, pirates, be good. We do love you. Bye. You can kill me, I will not die, not now, not ever, no, never.
buy records. They won't tell me when I can drink and what I can drink. They want to ban drugs and sex and everything. People want to have a lot of rules. A lot of rules and regulations. But listen up. Listen up, Mr. Rules and Regulations. I ain't gonna obey it! What's up, man? I ain't gonna do what you say. Oh, you can put me in jail. You can kill me. You can execute me. But you can't kill rock and roll, man. I'll tell you another damn thing. I ain't eating no more fucking McDonald's either. I ain't gonna eat it no more. I ain't gonna eat it because it don't taste good. You know what? McDonald's, you kiss my butt! McDonald's, you kiss my butt. It's a great big hairy butt. Got a dingleberry hanging off my butt. McDonald's, kiss my ass. You know, people say, Mojo, you're always complaining about everything. Why don't you vote in the election? Why don't you become involved in the electoral process? Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Vote for Clinton, Mojo. It's going to make everything nice and new and neat. We got one fool, just as big a fool as the other fool. Ain't nothing changed. Same fools riding around in the black cars. We still riding around on the subway, riding around in the bus. We riding around in a 1978, you know, 1978 El Torino or some damn thing. Leaking all, ain't got no money. Gotta pay taxes, everything's screwed up. I ain't gonna take it no more. I'm gonna start an armed insurrection. I'm gonna go to the hills of West Virginia and I'm gonna liberate some guns from a National Guard armory. And I'm gonna start armed revolt because at some time in the course of human events it becomes necessary to disassociate yourself the ties that bind. I wanna break them ties. I wanna bust them up. So there I am standing around a campfire in the hills of West Virginia. And the flames are shooting up high. And I happen to be the head of the armed insurrection of Rebel Alliance. And I'm going to sing our brand new our brand new national anthem that goes something like this. You can't kill me. I will not die. Not now. Not ever. No, never. Wow. I'm going to live a long, long time. My soul is on. Full of holes, but you can't kill the spirit of rock and roll, baby!